In 1900, for instance, when it became apparent that the sewage flowing from the Chicago River into Lake Michigan might contaminate the drinking water, the city simply reversed the flow of the river. Jack loved the city for its ingenuity, as well as for its easygoing demeanor. I can't see why anyone would want to live anywhere else in the world, he used to say. And he relished its tussles, large and small. He hustled peddling his VVAX, embracing the underdog, finding ways to reinvent himself. Not for the purpose of self-aggrandizement, but rather because life is short and sometimes another path seems enticing and just worth the try. Jack was born in Chicago, where he spent much of his youth, minus some years in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Raised a devout Catholic, in his twenties he entered Gethsemane, a Trappist monastery in the Blue Hills of Kentucky, His novice master was the theologian and author Thomas Merton. Gethsemane required a vow of silence, and at dinner, if you wanted salt, you had to stare hard at the shaker until another brother noticed. One day, cutting down a tree, Jack couldn't contain himself. He held his head back and roared, Timber! After that, his days at the monastery were numbered. Within a couple of years, he had married, and he and his young wife, Fran, who herself had just spent a year in a nunnery, opened a Catholic worker farm in eastern Missouri for recovering alcoholics. Jack and Fran eventually had nine children together and found their way back to Chicago, where they settled in Austin, a neighborhood at the city's farthest western reaches, a collection of wood-framed single-family homes and grand-looking churches. The eleven of them lived in a three-bedroom home with one bathroom. Shortly after they moved in, in 1965, the complexion of Austin changed virtually overnight. As black families began buying into the neighborhood, realtors, in a scheme that became known as blockbusting, deliberately frightened whites into selling. Blockbusting was a rather simple yet utterly destructive tactic. First, a realtor would buy a home on an all-white street and move in a black family. Then the white families on the block would panic, selling their homes to the realtor at bargain basement prices. The realtor would then make a hefty profit by turning around and selling them to more black families. But Jack and Fran insisted on staying in Austin, and they made a show of it, joining civil rights marches through Chicago's segregated neighborhoods. My wife remembers one rally her father took her to, where at the age of ten she clutched Ralph Abernathy's hand, trying to hide her face from her best friend's father, who was screaming racial epithets at the marchers from the curb. Go back to where you came from, the angry refugees from Eastern Europe's communism yelled at the blacks, refugees themselves from the Jim Crow South. This city is the story of newcomers, the Irish, Poles, Croats and Serbs, Mexicans, and more recently, Asians and Africans. But in the end, it's defined by race, by a history that is by turn ugly and celebratory. From the 1919 race riots to the 1983 election of the city's first black mayor, Harold Washington. Even milestones such as Washington's election come at a cost, though. It was marked by the ugliest and most divisive of campaigns— in which Washington's opposition rallied voters with the slogan, Before It's Too Late. In the 1960s and 70s, white landlords wouldn't rent to blacks. Jack didn't think that was right, and so he did what he could do to force their hand. Working for a local fair housing organization, Jack invented testing, 
a benign appellation given the ugliness it uncovered. A black couple would try to rent an apartment and inevitably be turned down. Then Jack and a colleague posing as his wife would try to rent the same place, usually successfully. A lawsuit would follow. Among the white parents in the neighborhood, Jack became known as the underground spy for the spooks, an accusation he was perfectly comfortable with. Jack eventually gave up that work to sell his Vivax, as well as a lens cleaner that he liked to boast was used by NASA. Jack and Fran divorced in 1975, and a few years later he and his new wife bought a three-flat on Elston Avenue along the Chicago River. Long before it was popular, Jack would launch his wood canoe from the riverbank nearby, pushing past the used condoms and floating beer bottles. Today it's considerably cleaner, and you can rent not only canoes, but, no kidding, gondolas. Jack bottled the Vivax in his garage, running feeder tubes down from twenty-five steel drums that he stored on the second floor of his home. On holidays, the family would gather at the house on Elston Avenue, and Jack would regale us with stories of his antics, most of which we knew by heart. Jack always, it seemed, pursued oversized ventures. Once the columnist Mike Royko held a kite contest along Lake Michigan, and Jack built one so large that the string tore the skin from his children's hands. My wife remembers her father planning to use the kite to tow his canoe across the lake, but she can't recall whether, in fact, he ever tried it. Another time he hooked up the family's Alaskan Malamute, Mishi, to a sled he built, and had him pull two of the girls. He was so proud of this achievement that he called the Chicago Daily News, which ran a photo on its front page. Jack liked to boast that he was the one who first raised questions about the killing of the Black Panthers' 21-year-old Fred Hampton and 22-year-old Mark Clark. On December 4, 1969, thirteen policemen stormed the young men's west side home. The police contended that the Panthers had opened fire on them, inviting newspaper reporters to come take pictures of the bullet holes that had allegedly come from the Panthers' firearms. The police, undoubtedly feeling cocky about their conquest, kept Hampton's home open. In the following days, lines of people paraded through the apartment, including Jack who, upon examining the contour of the bullet holes, realized they'd been made by a hammer and nail. Jack said it was he who alerted the newspapers, and indeed, a subsequent FBI investigation found that the Panthers had fired one bullet, whereas the police had fired as many as ninety-nine. On occasion I'll be somewhere, and it'll come up in conversation that I'm married to a Waljan. Jack's daughter? they'll ask. I'll tell them yes, and they'll smile, and inevitably pass along some story. He was, said a friend of his, one of a kind. When Jack's wife sold their house after his death, my wife decided she wanted only one item, a sculpture her father had erected in his side yard. Its design is simple. An anvil hanging by a thin cable from a tall wooden pole floats a foot above a metal dish filled with birdseed. I suppose that my wife has plans to reconstruct it in our backyard someday. I'm not sure. I'm afraid to ask. Jack once told a reporter, when the birds come, they kind of look up nervously at the anvil while they eat. I think it's a beautiful juxtaposition of power and fragility. The same might be said of his chosen city. 
Chicago is a stew of contradictions, coarse yet gentle, idealistic yet restrained, grappling with its promise, alternately cocky and unsure. Nelson Algren, himself a bar of discordant notes, wrote in his prose poem City on the Make, Once you've come to be a part of this particular patch, you'll never love another. Like loving a woman with a broken nose, you may well find lovelier lovelies, but never a lovely so real. An imperfect place, Chicago, is America's city. It dreams America's dream. Chicagoans, it has been said, are tribal, living among their own, a city of insiders whose entire identity is wrapped up in their neighborhood or parish. I once asked the chief judge at criminal court where he was from, and he replied, Lady of Lords, as if that would assist me in placing him. The former chief of staff for the city's current mayor once laughingly told me that he never felt a part of the city hall gang, because, as they would frequently remind him, he wasn't from Bridgeport, the southwest neighborhood where the mayor and his cronies hailed from. Indeed, Rand McNally sells one poster-sized map that breaks the city into 198 neighborhoods. It's over 200 if you count a few it missed, each defined by ethnicity, race, or class, each distinct from the other, some with straightforward designations like Ukrainian Village, Greektown, and Andersonville. A.J. Liebling, in a series of New Yorker pieces on the city in the 1950s, mistook this small-town quality for provincialism. He derisively referred to Chicago as the second city. Contrary to popular perception and Liebling's claims, Chicagoans didn't take offense. In fact, eight years later, the city's premier comedy troupe, which spawned the likes of John Belushi, John